how can an agency like ours or any other think about productizing a service? So I, I still hone in on producing your services, but producing it in a predictable manner. So the way that I like to, the, the analogy I give is when you go to the grocery store or you're trying to make a soup, you're going to get the vegetables, the potatoes, the chicken, if you're into chicken soup, the carrots, whatever. And those are all different ingredients or different products. But when you bundle them together, it's the offer, it's the chicken soup. Same thing for the agency. When you have all these different pieces together, you can productize each deliverable. But then when you work with clients, you can create custom orders, custom bespoke solutions that feels unique and special to the client. But in reality, you're just combining two or three things that you already have productized, ready to go, that the client mm -hmm. can then take. Every SaaS company plays for high stakes, but what does it take to dominate the market right now? Welcome to Paris Talks Marketing, the podcast where we dive deep into the latest trends and strategies in SaaS marketing that are really working today. I'm your host, Paris, and our guests are SaaS CMOs, founders, and specialists, and we discuss one trendy topic in the industry per episode. Ready to unlock the true power of marketing strategy? In this theme, we'll explore the world of cutting edge marketing strategies and tactics that are shaking up the SaaS industry. We'll share insights on testing new tactics and uncover the latest developments from digital landscape giants like Google, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We'll also explore how AI is revolutionizing the digital landscape and transforming marketing tactics. So grab your headphones and get ready for a marketing strategy masterclass with Paris Talks Marketing. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Paris Talks Marketing. And today I'm with Raul Hernandez Ochoa. Raul is the founder of Do Good Work, a digital growth consulting practice that helps bootstrap digital businesses achieve profitable growth. With extensive experience as a digital growth operator and strategist, Raul has helped double to 5x digital agencies generating millions of dollars in revenue using his productive profits strategies. Raul's expertise also extends to designing marketing and sales teams that have produced over $50 million in sales, and he's been responsible for over $25 million in direct response ad spend. Raul has trained thousands of entrepreneurs through private paid programs and live events, sharing his knowledge and expertise to help them succeed in their digital businesses. Raul, welcome to the show. Harris, thanks for having me, man. I'm excited. I'm really lucky today because as a digital business owner, as a digital agency owner, I've got tons of questions for you, particularly around how you've been so successful in helping these types of businesses to grow. First question that I have for you is you've consulted with, with so many businesses like mine. What are a lot of the common challenges that you see now with digital marketing agencies? I think the biggest one that comes to mind, and this is fresh, like one of my teams are literally in negotiations with an agency, is the agency's failure right now to positions themselves out of a commodity mm -hmm. instead of saying, I will do these things for you. I'll run this marketing for you. I'll send these many emails for you, these social posts for you. I'll give you my hands and I'll jump this high for you for this price mm -hmm. versus positioning around. Here's the goal that you want. Here's the work that needs to happen to achieve that goal. And we can hit those goals in certain timelines. How do you want to get started? Yeah. I, I think positioning is really something that lots of businesses struggle with. And the hardest question that I, that I have to answer a lot of times when I'm speaking to prospects is, so what makes you guys different? I've spoken mm -hmm. to a few other agencies. They all say the same thing. They say they have a great team. They say that they're great at strategy. They say that they're data-driven. They're results-oriented. They focus on ROI. And so agencies are all pretty much saying the same things. How, how, how can an agency 
dig deeper and try to position themselves differently around a, a USP that other agencies don't really have. By not being an agency. So when mm -hmm. you are categorized as an agency to the prospect's minds, you're just that, an agency. Uh, one of my guys that I'm working with, I do a cohort, eight agency owners, helping them grow. And their, their goal is to hit like their first mill. The positioning right now, one of my guys, he's former military, U.S. military. He cares about clients' results because he only works with bootstrap founders. And he knows that he only makes money when they make money. Mm -hmm. But he's still saying, I'm positioned as like a media buy agency. Instead of flipping the switch and saying, why don't you position yourself as like a go-to-market partner or a chief revenue fractional CRO with a team that can help execute the marketing and the plans and the strategies that they need to achieve success? Because if you support, if you keep saying that I'm an agency or you're playing in the, in the playground of agencies, you're all going to look the same as opposed to mm -hmm. positioning either as a growth partner or a strategic consultant closer to the client in alignment to their goals. And I think when you have those different kinds of conversations, you don't have to say my team has done X, Y, and Z. I think that's like on the second half of the conversation. The first half of the combo mm -hmm. is all around, what is your true pain point? How can we understand this differently than everyone else? And how can we make you see this differently than what everyone else is saying? Because at the end of the day, the work still needs to be done. The work's not going to change. They still need copy. They still need ads. They still need a funnel. They still need emails. However, it's the mm -hmm. approach and the believability of how they see themselves, their situation, how they see you as supporting them to achieve or get out of that situation if they're struggling or if they want to achieve the next level of growth. So mm -hmm. it's a little bit of a nuance, but it's also tactfully not positioning or labeling, labeling yourself as an agency. Gotcha. Um, one thing that I'm really eager to talk to you about also is productization of services. One of the things that lots of agencies are trying to do and other service-based companies is to try to move away, well, to try to evolve from a service-based company, which is typically people-heavy, could be high-margin, but not very scalable, mm -hmm. to a product company, which typically will be something much more scalable um, and possibly higher value, higher multiples. How can an agency like ours or any other think about productizing a service? So the first thing is I, I don't want to take away just from doing services. So I, I still hone in on producing your services, but producing it in a predictable manner. So the way that I like the, the, the analogy I give is when you go to the grocery store or you're trying to make a soup, you're going to get the vegetables, the potatoes, the chicken, if you're into chicken soup, the carrots, whatever. And those are all different ingredients or different products. But when you bundle them together, it's the offer, it's the chicken soup. Same thing for the agency. When you have all these different pieces together, you can productize each deliverable. But then when you work with clients, you can create custom orders, custom bespoke solutions that feels unique and special to the client. But in reality, you're just combining two or three things that you already have productized, ready to go, that the client mm -hmm. can then take. Now, does this open the opportunity for the future to create a software, potentially, or a platform, potentially, or marketplace, maybe, community, perhaps? But the key thing right now, because we are labor intensive, because we're focusing on how can we maximize our effectiveness in our team, not to make them work, like grind their teeth and have them work to like the very, the very end, but more about how can we be effective and efficient with what we have? What tools and resources can we introduce to increase that effect effectiveness? Because now we're diving into operational expenses and profitability. And at the same time, how do we leverage those things so that when we're talking to prospects, we have the opportunity to position or create bespoke solutions that we can then price anchor and create different pricing options to win deals at a higher rate based on value, not just based on hours. Yeah. Now that's starting to make more sense. We have a particular plan to try to productize something called PLTV, predictive okay. lifetime value. And that's actually that's cool. a, um, it's a data science method to take first party data, run machine learning on it, 
and then try to predict on the basis of that, try to predict the future value, the future lifetime value of a new customer pretty much right at the moment that they're acquired through wow. Google ads. Yeah. And that's fascinating. So you have a lot of like uh, a database, data lake and something processing that data to give you that predictive analysis. Yeah, we do. So the, the baseline is, is historic LTV, historic lifetime value. And then you, you do predictive analysis using a machine learning model on first party data like, well, zero, zero party data that they might fill into a form as they're converting or behavioral data, how they're using the product in the, in the initial hours and maybe the first two or three days of a trial. So all that stuff is data that you can pull in. And then you try to have a machine learning model that can figure out which data points can predict their lifetime value against the, the baseline historic LTVs. And then you, you take the, the predicted value, the, the PLTV, and feed it back to Google as a conversion event. It has a specific value. Oh, and then wow. you can switch over to value-based bidding and you can bid to acquire new customers on the basis of their PLTV. And you're able to compete at a higher level. The one who acquires the customer at the highest price can win day in, day out. That's interesting. Have you, right. how do you use that in your conversations with prospects or like when you're talking to potential clients? Well, for now, we talk first about value-based bidding and the importance of transitioning into first-party data strategies because third-party cookies are going to be going away. A lot of folks are not really prepared for what that means. So when that does happen, we're going to see, I think, a, a pretty dramatic decline in the return on ad spend. And there's going to be a lot of gaps in the data that Google no longer has from third-party cookies. And they're going to need first-party data to fill in those gaps. Yeah, no. And that could be data from CRM or marketing automation platforms. It could be emails, it, it, any kind of data that Google doesn't have that's first-party owned by the advertiser that can assist Google in bidding more smartly. It's going to be critical. And so we're, we're trying to design the, the ultimate first-party data input, which is predicted lifetime value. That's pretty interesting. So then from there, mm -hmm. like, are you looking to white label that to other agencies? Because that's a solution that everyone's going to need eventually. Exactly. That is exactly how we're planning to go to market right now, selling through agencies. We've tested direct a little bit as well, and there's been some interest, but I do think for agencies, this solves the pain point of client churn. Yeah. Because if you design uh, something that is proprietary coming from the agency, a, a model, a machine learning model that predicts LTV, and if that works... Well, then the agency really has that client for life, theoretically. Yeah. Absolutely. And now, I mean, there's natural churn, but you're right. It's a longer stickiness. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah. And because for the other agencies, it's solving a huge pain point. So you're outside of just a like working with, you work primarily with software companies, correct? Yeah, with, with SaaS mostly, yeah. Yeah, so SaaS companies from SaaS marketing, SaaS agency to supporting other agencies through this essentially your IP, if you like, if you're going to do licensing plan or whatever you're planning to do to, to give that to the other agency. But also when you're selling to the marketplace, it's less about you being an agency, more about you being a, sort of like, not just LTV, but the data analyst piece of it. Like there has to be a position in the marketplace around not just intelligence, but the future of how we're going to leverage all these iOS changes, all these Google changes, all these UTM changes, first party, third party mm -hmm. tracking. And like, what does that future look like? What is that name of that future? And then how do you create your own category with that future in mind? So people aren't buying you, they're buying the future. They're buying, this is the outcome that we're preparing ourselves to. And it's an investment into the future. Right, right. This is the solution, my agency's solution to a post third party cookie world or a part of the solution, at least. Yeah, I think you can take your time right. to build it into a SaaS. But what I'm thinking is, how do you label that future? What does a cookie-less future look like? How do you capture the market's mind instead of saying I'm an agency versus I am a software provider, but 
for the future that's cookie-less. So how do you paint mm -hmm. that picture? And I think that's how you can get yourself out of position as I'm another agency owner. Here's what we can do yeah. for you. Because if you have something that other people don't, we have to capitalize on that. Yeah. And we, we also want to separate this apart from the agency as well, because we don't want to have any kind of competitive association. I mean, if, if this is an agency solution, it's going to be harder to sell to other agencies. Because Well, anyway, I, let's get back to some of the things that you've helped your clients with. And, and productization is a fascinating topic. Yeah. I love the, the chicken soup analogy because it's easy to get my head around that. If I take a few things that you're doing now and bundle it together, and then you have a, an actual solution that you can give a name to, mm -hmm. and you can get people to think differently about it's not a PPC agency doing Google ads management, but it's a SaaS growth consultant that is doing a lot of the same things, but the focus is on the, on the solution rather the solution. than the solution part. Yeah. And at yeah. that point, you're selling money at a discount. Like if you want to get this outcome, this two to three X or ROAS, or if you want to get this growth goal or this additional revenue or lower churn, you position mm -hmm. that in your goals and how you're going to hit that. And like, these are the timelines and price points to hit that. And if the return, it's an investment decision, not an expense decision. That's one of the key difficulties with the agencies is sometimes clients just feel like it's just an expense. It's money out, money out versus it's an investment mm -hmm. or it's a game, a net positive versus a net negative. Yeah. Selling money at a discount. I, I like that. <laughs> Let's talk about pricing now. I've I've been listening to lots of agency consultants and podcasts that say the first thing you ought to do is, is raise your price. Most likely you're pricing too low and the market yeah. is willing to pay more. And that, that takes a lot of guts to do that. Where is that coming from? How does an agency like mine even analyze our pricing? Are we competitive? Should we raise prices? Have we, do we price ourselves out of deals? What's the, what's the right way to think about pricing? Well, I think that, I mean, I'm not sure what the consultants are saying or the agency people are saying, frankly. I'm more in the game mm -hmm. and figuring it out as we do it. I think you can you know, raise your prices and call it a day, but strategically, I want to know exactly how and why and where we need to price at. And I always mm -hmm. want to be profitable. So one of the key things that I work with, either with one-on-ones or in the cohorts, is we always have to maintain minimum, minimum, it depends on your goals, my goal at least 30% profitability for the services that we deliver. The way that I look mm -hmm. at it is I divide your business model into two. You want to take the expenses, I call them investments, into the business as overhead. We already know that yours, your uh, admin costs, software costs, if you have an office, office costs, so whatever it is to support mm -hmm. and run the business. That's one half of the equation. But then the other investments or expenses, depends who you talk to, are going to the team that physically works with the client. And when you look at that, you have a salary budget that you're paying what I call a task unit. We can call them a pod, but we're paying mm -hmm. them to manage a portfolio of clients. And that to me is like an investment. You're looking at them. It's a portfolio investment. I'm spending 50, 75K a month and they're managing, you know, 80, 120, 150, 200 in revenue. Mm -hmm. So that's the way I split it at the top. The other key things to look at is what is your average overhead cost per client? You have to add that to your pod expenses. And then now you can play. What can you play with? Well, you can play with how many clients do you normally manage at a time? How many clients can your pod manage? What type of team do you need in your pod? And we can dive into that if you want. And what is the pricing you need to hit the margins that you want? Because if you know all of your overhead, your overhead per client, how much you're paying in salary the team to manage the client, your average client retainer or revenue per month, and the number of average clients you keep, then you can start predicting, okay, I need a price minimum. I'm just going to throw a number out there, 6,500 a month minimum to make a 34% profit margin based on my team structure, based on where we're at. And this is where it gets interesting. 
And this is where you can now see like, okay, if that's the minimum I need to, how can I create value in offers and bundles that the base or the lowest amount that I'll ever sell it at is going to be at this amount? So anything on top of that based on value is a net positive. Because when I price or position uh, an offer, I don't like just to give, here's a proposal, here's like the 20 page deck of what we'll do for you. And it's one price, one option. I usually give less than five pages, but usually just one page. Here's the proposal. Here are three options. Here are three timeframes. Here's three prices. You tell me what you want to do. And then the client then tells you how deep they want to go with you and what kind of uh, engagement they want. Because now they're like zoning in on their bullseye. Okay, I, I can only do this pricing and I only want these many services and outcomes in this time frame. And it's less yeah, selling on your end, more about discovery. Do you know their pain points in such a way where you can create bundles and offers where mm -hmm. they know they understand me? I see the future. This is different. And I want to work with them at this level. And you can position those prices so that you always win above your minimum base that you need to be profitable. Mm -hmm. so I think that that's also something that I've thought a lot about and we've tested it a little bit, which is when making proposals, do we offer different options with different pricing or do we offer one single option, which is priced correctly and uh, give less flexibility, but keep that prospect focused on one single solution. Mm -hmm. And in the, I don't know, the recent last couple of years, we've opted for the second, which is rather than giving options, giving them a single option that they can focus on so that they don't necessarily get confused. But I think what you're saying is with different options, they feel like it's no longer a yes or no answer, but it's, do I go with option A or B or C, and then most likely you're going to have a higher win rate and you can even anchor uh, option A. I mean, you can anchor one at a high price point yep. so that the middle one looks like a, a great deal. And that's the one that you want them to take anyway. Yeah. Is that, and it's also depending on how, who function? they are. Yeah. Some people take the highest price because that's who they are personally and psychologically. And mm -hmm. that's like, I've experienced that firsthand. Like they don't even look at the other price. Like I saw what you sent. I only, I didn't bother to look at the other two because this is my business. I care about so much. I'm going to invest all I can. Like, okay, mm -hmm. let's get to work. And we got to work. The other thing yeah. to keep in mind though, is this isn't different offers in terms of different solutions. It's the same solution, different pacing, different what else is included. So it's not going to be the deluxe. Like when you, this was really silly, but when we, when we got our car, like, I don't know, three years ago, five years ago, they, they gave you like the, the Lux model, the medium model, and then the base stock model. It's the same car, four wheels and take you everywhere. It doesn't matter what kind of yeah. paint or leather they got inside, right? Or the colors or the rims or the sunroof or whatever the, the cars have. But again, you, they gave you options. So not to say that you're going to be a car dealership, but it's the same solution. Like, okay, you want to get here to there from A to B. Great. Do you want to get there quickly? Do you want to get there with the most support? Do you want to get the latest tech stack? Do you want our predictive LTV? Like you can't get predictive LTV in the base. You can only get it in the medium or the high. And then that way they'll make decisions based on what do they care about the most? Because when you think about it, like when I'm shopping with agencies and I'm working to, to different people, I care one, that I'm heard and two, how good is the proposal? And three, like, I don't care about their three page. Here's what we've done. Frankly, I don't I, personally, I don't care about that. I care mm -hmm. about what are you going to do for me? And what's the price going to look like? Because it has to be a value conversation, not just oh, you're charging me for hours. Now, don't do what this one agency did, which we're going through right now, is that they give us literally their stack of what they're doing for us and valuing, here's how much an email costs. I'm like, I'm trying to think, like, how is an email this expensive for you to write it and put it on an you know, active campaign or something? Like, that to me is bizarre. Don't do that because then now you're so literally like telling micro them. micro a la carte. 
Every single activity is priced a la carte. That yes, approach. and then hourly billing. It's it's literally the telling the client, please price shop and price comparison me, and please mm -hmm. race to the bottom. It's 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 a horrible idea. Now, is yeah. this to say that we're doing this to trap clients in a very specific way? No, it's all around. You have to be good at what you do. You have to get the results that you're proven to get. And you have to position yourself as the expert because at the end of the day, clients just want to be led. They want an expert or the adult in the room and they want you to have all the answers. If you can do that and do it in a cool way, you're going to win. Yeah. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. The Paris Talks Marketing Show is affiliated with Hop Online, a performance marketing agency focused on high growth SaaS and other recurring revenue-based companies. If you like the flow of this conversation, you may want to consider jumping on a discovery call with someone at Hop Online. A discovery call is similar to my podcast interviews in a lot of ways. We'll get to know your business goals, competitive landscape, and marketing needs. And you'll almost certainly come away with some new ideas for how to accelerate your customer and revenue growth. If you're interested, go to hop.online, that's hop, H-O-P, dot online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, back to the episode. I, I do like this concept of the pod structure, and, and I've, I've thought about that too. What we have in our agency, we don't have that. We have a more traditional matrix organization where we have teams, specialized teams. We've got a Google Ads team, we've got a paid social team, an SEO team, a content marketing team. And then th these, are, these are the verticals, and then horizontally, you've got account managers that mm -hmm. work with a portfolio of clients with different mix of services. And I, I'm fascinated by the pod structure because I do think it's a better way, I think it's a better growth model. It's a better way to manage your margins because of exactly what you said. You've got one piece that's allocated overhead. You've got another piece that is the direct pod cost, which is more or less the cost of your team. And then you can decide how to structure those teams. You can decide what is a maximum capacity, a client capacity within each team. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can grow those teams as they, as they acquire bigger portfolios. And then also for the client, it's better, I think, because the client gets a, multi, a multifaceted team. So the client would get a team led by an account manager, but they're going to get a PPC expert, a paid social expert, a copywriter. They'll get an SEO specialist. I mean, if they're going to take the whole package. The question is really how could someone like me transition from a typical siloed or matrix type of an organization built mostly around teams built around specializations, transition to a pod structure built around the client? So I don't want to oversimplify the answer, and this is in no way to sound cute or whatever, but it's actually a very simple beginning step. It's not going to be the transition does take time, and it is to take intention and effort. But to be honest with you, the number one thing that I would recommend in all of the teams that I work with you, open up a Lucid chart, a piece of paper, or a Google Draw. And the key mm -hmm. is identifying who are the either founders or executive team. That's one section. And I usually like to use squares so I can move people around. So I, I, I come from a creative. I wanted to be an animator and I did animation. I did all. I come from a creative background, turned into entrepreneur, turned into growth, turned into all this stuff, operations and skills. So I still go back to my roots of design thinking. It's mm -hmm. like sticky notes. Use those tools to like move things around like sticky notes. But you want to have your executive team or founder team or C-suite in one location. Then you want to also identify on the left-hand or right-hand side, who are your key vendors? Like ones that you outsource key specific things to. Maybe you have a tracking vendor, maybe you have a copywriting vendor, maybe you have a creative vendor that just produces creative for you every month. So you want to have them separate as well. And then at the end, you also want to have, what does your team structure look like? 
And the way that I like to structure pods is I like to have a three-tiered approach because this is actually inspiration from the uh, the U.S. military, like the, the leader trains their delegate and the delegate can take over the leader eventually. But essentially, I have three essences here. These are not job descriptions. These aren't jobs roles, but these are types of people. The head honcho, the one leading the pod is a driver. Their energy, their internal drive is making things happen, tenacity to move things forward. They're open-minded. They communicate well with the client. They can manage stress and they can manage the team. Then you have an operator under them. The operator supports the driver, client communications, working with the client, ensuring that all things are there, the ships are running on time, the checklists are happening. This could be your account manager. Typically, that's what the parallel is. And then from there, they support their specialists. And here's where you have, where I like to have multiple, either three to five specialists in the pod. And these specialists can manage a portfolio of five to eight, sometimes 10, depending on the type of work you do, but usually for higher end work, it caps at around five to eight, mm-hmm. where they have managed five to eight clients each. So that's how you can create okay. your portfolio pod that way. Now, you might have different specialists in the pod supporting those clients. So you just want to know what your portfolio can look like. But you want to essentially just draw that out or use sticky notes and then move people around and say, what is this? How would this look like? And then you want to get the numbers behind it. What's their salary? What's this salary? What's this pod investment? What's our average number of clients per pod? What's our overhead per client? What's our total overhead? What's our expenses? And then just do a simple P&L analysis and you can figure mm-hmm. out, okay, here's where we're at. Here's our pricing. Here's the pod. If we were to transition this, how might this look like financially? Because it has to make sense financially first. Once you're in alignment with that, then the next step is communication and setting up the teams for success. This talks into operations, your communication structure, your meeting structure, your client account management structure, your project management structure. But those heavy liftings will just parallel what you've drawn out on your Google, Lucid, or uh, sticky notes. Yeah. I think the client communication wouldn't be such a big deal because I think the clients would kind of, they'd still have their same point of contact, the account manager. And they, they might not even feel the difference, but for the team, it could be a little bit jolting. Uh, it's a transition. The up, yeah. There's this one gentleman, I posted his pod. We, we, I had him on. His name is Randy Hall. If you're listening, Randy, what's up? But I will listen to that pod because he goes through four steps to effectively manage change in an organization. And I use them because after he told me they were brilliant, they work. It takes time. It takes a lot of intention and commun- over-communication, but it's brilliant. So- Do you know what those are uh, off the top of your head? Uh, I do. I can look it up real quick as well. But the first one is, man, Randy, I apologize. I'm going to butcher it. He can say better than I can. But the first is just setting the intentions with the team and having the team tell you, can this work? Or what do you think about this idea? You're not, instead of coming to the team saying, team, we're going to hike that mountain. You're going to say, team, what if we hike that mountain? What do you think about that? And they're like, oh, I don't know. Like maybe we need a backpack. Maybe we need some hiking shoes. And then they'll start telling you those things because you in your mind, you've already went through the process of chewing through the information and understanding that this is a positive outcome. But if you tell the team that they're going to be fearful, they're going to be, this has changed, this is weird. Uh, And they're going to be like, well, we didn't have enough time to process that. So you want to give them that time and that space could take an extra three weeks Mm -hmm. or a month. But you talk about, I think the first step is what is the outcome that we're trying to achieve? What are the goals? How will this benefit us? And what are the pitfalls? And have the team literally tell you. And then on a second meeting or a second phase, again, Randy will tell you better, is if this is our outcomes and goals, what are the habits that we need if we're going to be successful? If we actually wanted to do this and propose that we can do this, what would be our habits that we need? And the team starts telling you their habits. And then over time, this team starts to see the other side like, oh, this may not be so crazy. We might actually be able to make this mountain. Oh, I think I can. And the steps three and four are practicing, actually implementing what you said you'd implement, the habits and what Mm -hmm. you 
the proposed goal, going through the motions, but then also setting a safe space at step four for the team to understand it's okay if you screw up. We're not here to judge you. We're not here to make you feel bad. This is not a do or die situation. Do your best, but this is a learning environment. And that would be, that's like the heavy lifting management piece of it. Yeah, I highly recommend checking out Randy. Okay, awesome. So let's pivot over to another topic now. You've written about something called the 80-20 day for digital teams. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, so every time that I've either I'm at leadership conferences with a team, like a quarterly meeting, or I'm doing trainings, or I'm running a team, or I'm doing one-on-ones or performance, like all, they always ask, how do I be more effective? Because no one teaches us how to work remote. Like when people mention that remote work, this whole thing, we were doing it since when? Like 2016 was my, right? Starting remote, first company with a guy I never met just in Brooklyn. So remote work isn't taught. And I, I frankly find it as an excuse when people say that remote work doesn't work. Like, no, it's like, it just takes a lot of intention. And yes, that's a little bold, but I'm not sorry about that. The 80-20 day for teams is how can we approach our day with intentionality? Because I don't believe that there's balance thing works. We have one brain, we have one life. And typically for entrepreneurs and specifically people who work online, you can't just shut off and turn off. It's five o'clock, I'm done. You can, but sometimes you might catch yourself checking email at seven. You might check Slack at 9 p.m. You might wake up and then there you are in social media and you want it, but you don't do that, but you do, right? So I understand that can happen, but it's about being intentional with the structure of your day. And the simplicity of it is in the morning, you have your morning routine, whatever that is. This is not some three hour like shindig. This could be a 30 minute routine. This can be, but make sure you take care of the essentials of who you are, mind, body, soul, health, getting some sunlight, drinking some water, like doing something to take care of yourself in the morning or what's important to you. And then you head into the 80-20 portion of your day. And this 80-20 portion of the day is is things that you're producing and bringing out to life. You're creating, you're building, you're writing, you're connecting. You may not be checking email because that's a waste of your time or checking Slack. That's another like mind suck. You can do that later. But you may be sending that email that is important for you to push out for the day. You might be sending that one proposal that's important to make progress in the day. So this is your chunk to like move things forward in alignment to the goals that you want to achieve, the goals that you have for your company and for yourself. Because if you don't set intention mm-hmm. for you, you will just run in the hamster wheel and five years go by, you're still in the same spot. After mm-hmm. that, 80-20 section could be an hour, could be three hours. Again, depends on how you want to design your day. I have a section where you now open up the floodgates, check the slacks, check the pings, check the emails, check whatever, and then start responding and start planning what you need to do in response for that day. And then the rest of your day, the three, five hours that you have, you start executing the things that are important for that day. And this is the daily work, the meetings, the appointments, the scheduled workloads, et cetera, et cetera. And then before you end your day, check your pings and your messages again. If you're doing it throughout the day, that's fine. But you do want to check it after the workday. And the times, this is universal. I have it more in the book, but the universal times to check. This is from all time zones. I've only worked with teams up to 12. I stopped counting at 12 time zones, so this might change. But the universal mm-hmm. times for me were around early morning, like mid-morning, 10 a.m. Pacific, and around 1 o'clock Pacific to check. And some people check before they sign off around 4 or 5. But the goal is before you end your day, check the intake of the day. Don't need to respond to everything. You can save it for tomorrow, plan for tomorrow, and then build up. The last section is a 30, 15-minute, 30-minute, hour, minute, whatever you want to choose section to build up to prepare for tomorrow. What meetings do I need to be on? How can I prepare for that? Who am I going to talk to? What's my day going to look like? How do I set the day in advance? What's the podcast I'm going to be on? Let me check out the podcast, the host, their LinkedIn, like 
all that you prepare in advance. So the next day you come in, you're fresh, you know what you're going to do. And in the morning, you set your intention for the day. And you just go at it again. And that mm-hmm. simplicity is doable. That's the goal. How do you mm-hmm. remain consistent over time? Yeah. And you think this is particularly an effective approach for our fully remote teams? I've only designed it. I've only experienced fully remote teams. It does help for physical teams as well. When I did this exercise with agency owners, media buyers, she was working eight to 12 hours a day. Again, this is not a promise. This is just an example, but she was working eight to 12 hours a day. We consolidated her day to be anywhere between six to eight hours because she doesn't need to be working the eight hours every day. Because sometimes you Mm -hmm. do your, if you do the heavy lifting, you get the things that have to get done that day, you're done. And you can set yourself permission saying, I have accomplished more than I did in the last week in a day. And give yourself the permission to check out, go walk the dog, hang out, and then prepare for the next day. This is in no way to live like a four-hour work week because there was a funny article of the fishermen in Mexico filed for bankruptcy, right? Everyone wants to be like that, that the, the four-hour work week working like the mm. fishermen in Mexico, that, that story from Tim Ferriss. Yeah. I don't believe in the four-hour work week. I believe in hard work and effective work, but I don't believe in working yourself to harm other areas of your life, your health, your faith, your mind, your family. Because if, you, if you're just good at one thing and you're failing at other things, you're not really successful. Yeah, I believe that entirely. And I think a key to getting, becoming more productive and also being able to work reasonable hours is prioritization mm-hmm. as well. Really, everybody is most likely working off of some sort of a to-do list. And it's very tempting to scan through that to-do list and, and go right at the easiest thing, wh- oh, yeah. whether it's top or bottom or middle. But I, I, I catch myself doing this all the time. I think, all right, well, I've got like a big mountain of things I have to do today. Where do I start? And I find myself looking for the easiest, quickest thing to do. And I work my way up that way. And I think that's a trap a lot of us fall into. And it's bad prioritization. If I were to start from the hardest, but most important strategic thing, Mm -hmm. maybe that's all I do that day, but that's a major accomplishment. And I can do it in maybe four or five hours, as opposed to knocking out six or seven minor tasks putting in a 10 hour day and feeling like, well, I got a whole lot done, but I, I'm still pushing that real key strategic task, still pushing that on to the next day or the day after. No, so prioritization is, is really, this is one thing that I heard from the former YouTube CEO, Susan Wojcicki, and she famously left work every day at like four o'clock or something. And she said, well, it doesn't, doesn't matter at all how many hours I'm putting in now. It's, it's all about how I prioritize and the decision-making making the right big decisions that are always bubbling up to me and only I can make and then working on the stuff that's high priority and and not ignoring all the rest or delegating to all the rest. No, I love that. I think one of the best, mm-hmm. I'll butcher this as well, but the best quote that I've heard or have listened to around the workaholic and the one who works really hard, they have the same goals. Just one is working out of fear. The workaholic works out of fear because they think that they need to do all these things and it's fearful versus out of abundance. That's great. And it's a fear of what? Of failure? I'm not sure. Fear of loss, fear of not accomplishing, self-identity fear, whatever it might be. But if you know who you are as a person, know that you your work is important, but that you are not the production of that work, that your work has value regardless of what you do because you're doing it, and that you know that you're doing the best, most important work first, you don't have to put in you know 16-hour days. And I think there is a thing about hustle that I think is important. You do need energy. You do need intention. You do need to work hard. That'll never go away. But you don't need to work yourself to like to the grind, to, to the bone, to mm-hmm. to make progress. That you can work intelligently and also enjoy life. Yeah. And I want to transition out to the last topic, which I am I'm dying to talk to you about, and it's something that everybody's talking about now. Of course, it's it's AI, generative AI, especially. Oh yeah. And this is a topic that you've written about, spoken about. 
And uh, it's about how to modernize your agency with AI. How do you advise the agencies that you're working with to think about using AI? What, what sort of advice are you giving and what opportunities do you think exist for agencies? I think AI? specifically, no, so there's, there's a hot topic here and this is not just a fad. AI has been here for a while, right? So the machine learning piece of where we're at, but now mm -hmm. it's more accessible for us and we can start leveraging and implementing it. I think it's important to look at this as a tool within the agency and also identify where you should and should not be using it. I mean, some of the key advantage points are like cost savings, improved client experiences, depending on how you want to leverage it for customer service and or support. You can do better decision making like what you're doing for PLTV. You can take data, put that through a machine learning and also do predictive analysis and probably train an AI to do that even better than most of your team can. But the key areas that I think are important are around competitive advantage and increased efficiency. Right now, a lot of people can compete by using the same tools. That's not unique. What's unique is competing on the invisible. And we already talked about the invisible. Competing on your business model and competing on your positioning. The business model specifically because, I mean, I'm not going to tell you to cut costs to make money. I'm not that finance guy. I'm the growth guy. So I'm going to tell you, let's grow. Mm -hmm. Let's do it Top prudently. Line, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Also, bottom line, profitability matters. Like if it's not mm -hmm. bottom line, it doesn't matter. But I think when it comes to the business model, you can look at your current teams. How can I make them more effective and lower, lower our operational expenses and increase operational effectiveness? Because that is a component to your profit. So the way that I've leveraged AI is with the existing principles in business. So there's seven profit levers that I've identified within a business that if you pull these levers, you can increase profit. You don't have to pull all of them to be successful. If you focus on one or two, you'll naturally pick up a third or fourth or fifth. So AI can leverage these by identifying how can I increase LTV? That's a profit lever. What are some of the things that I can do to increase LTV? Either creating a sticky product with my clients so they can stick around longer. That could be a PLTV is a perfect sticky product because once you anchor them with that, they can't find that anywhere else. So that's yeah. a one way to increase your profitability. The other one is your pricing. How can you be competitive with your pricing or with your profitability and your margins in the business model that we just discussed? Like my guy who runs a, he runs a podcasting agency. I think he literally said 65 to 70% profitability because he's leveraging AI, automations, uh, some offshore workforce, fractional part-time work, stay-at-home moms. Mm -hmm. And he productized that service, but he's also positioned that service in a different way. It's another way to compete on the invisible. Mm -hmm. Uh, the operational effectiveness right. and labor efficiency, we already talked about. That's a third profit lever. And the last four profit levers are related to sales. So your upgrades or your upsell rates, uh, your win back rates, like clients that come back to work with you that were previous mm -hmm. clients, referral rates and your sales volume. So again, this isn't to say AI is going to, I don't really like looking at the tools because the tools change. I think a thousand were sprouting every week. I like looking at the principles and where does this key thing play a role with all those principles? Uh, and that's really where I'm seeing it right now to strategically leverage them versus just, hey, jump on the Discord mid-journey train, jump on this train, jump on that. There's other interesting ways where you can start streamlining consulting. I'll be transparent. There is part of some of the go-to-market strategies that I have. A lot of them are input-output. So if I can train in a bot and create a chain of those, of all the inputs and outputs, I can create a strategy that would normally take 15, 20 hours in like three hours. And it's top tier strategy with copy, positioning, taking all the data from the existing client, their research, their testimonials, their pieces, and creating a winning go-to-market strategy because it's all framework-based. So you can also streamline it that way and create your own internal apps or workflow with effectiveness. Mm -hmm. That's great stuff. Last quick question here that I want to ask you. It's a little bit about the client acquisition, but there's some a concept that you talk about, about the glass 
how to shatter the glass in your market and get clients coming to you. This is what every agency owner dreams about is having too many clients or clients coming to you and you being able to pick and choose who to work with. How does that work? What, what is this notion of shattering the glass about? I think it's all around identifying the internal desires of the ideal client that you want to work with. So I'll give you a clear example of this. Uh, one of my friends, he's here in San Diego. He runs a branding consultancy. So he, he used to build websites, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 grand for SaaS companies because they care about their branding. Mm -hmm. But as you evolve and as he evolved, the other key piece to branding is conversion. But no one really talks about branding and conversions. They just think branding is a beautiful design, a beautiful logo, but no one talks or gives revenue to a brand. Like, how do you know that a brand logo is going to increase your revenue or unlock like a Series B fundraise? No, how? So the way that he, we, we had some coffee chats, but he took it upon his volition. This is not me. This is him and his co-founder. So I'm giving you, you credit here, Zach. But what they're doing is they're now focusing about conversion branding, branding that converts to revenue. That's different. They launched literally on Monday four phone calls that he filled up the pipeline in a day. Warm network, of course, but it's different. I'm not just some brand shop. I'm not just some arts and crafts shop. I'm not just going to build. We're focusing on the key outcome, the key desire that their specific target market because they niche down with a very unique solution and they productize it. It's literally a click and choose. What subscription do I want to work with you at? So it's the cool. shattering the glass is all around the positioning, but also diving into the internal desires of the not just your ideal clients, but the marketplace and creating, I don't want to say bespoke offerings, but I do want to say like unique products and services that highlight those two emotions at the peak. I call that peak positioning. And when you do that, it's less about words. It's more about what's the value of the work that you're doing through their lens, which is the same reason why people buy, I mean, a $10,000 bag or $5,000 shoes. Like why do people buy that? Because it's the value perception. But also with the services, you have to back it up with the results. So it's marrying those Great. two. Yeah. Well, Raul, this has been amazing. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wished I would have asked? No, I think that was you. You went, this is a long episode. We went pretty deep in a lot of areas. I think the most important is to remember that whatever goal you set, whatever outcome you want to achieve, you will achieve it. But the goal and the key thing that I've been honing in here with 80-20, with designing your day, designing your profit, designing your experiences, that the journey matters because the journey now does determine the destination. And sometimes we just focus on the destination and this is going to suck for a long time. Sure, there's seasons, but we just focus on the destination, not on the journey. When in reality, how we approach the journey equals the destination. I think that's the one key thing that I have to keep in mind. Yeah, that's great. Great advice, Raul. Thank you so much for, for sharing all this wisdom and, and just generally, you're, you're a business sage, not only for agencies, but I think in general, how uh, the mindset that you, that you take to business and life in general really, really hits home for me. So thanks for sharing all that. And I really appreciate the time and have really a fun. great rest of your week. You too, man. Thank you. Thanks. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about our growth marketing agency, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P dot online. Have a great day.